And and that's what men caused for G. And it wasn't just you. It was it was all men. It was. It was every man that he ever met. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey. As I've mentioned before, names are always changed to protect the identity of the children. Today we're here to tell the story of G. G came to us at one year old, and his story took a number of crazy turns and twists, and we're going to share it with you here. Today we're bringing you episode one of five, so stay tuned to catch the whole story. Hey, this is Jason. And Amanda. And we're here to tell you a story about a little boy that we called G. First off, we have to kind of describe who G was and how we were connected to him. G's mom was named Ange. Ange had three kids. The first child was raised by Angie's grandma, and we never had really any connection with her. Her second child was born, and about two, two and a half weeks after she was born, they found her passed away in the bed with Ange one morning. There was never any real investigation about it. They just ruled it a SIDS case. And then there was G. And G is who we're here to talk about. When Ange was pregnant with G, she had gotten locked up and went to prison for a while. And was her almost her entire pregnancy was done in the prison system. The benefit of that is that it kept her clean through most all the pregnancy. When she came out, she was like 9.2 months pregnant or something. <laughs> she was pretty close. She was out for five days before the birth of G. Okay. So, yeah, it was a real short time. And when, when Ange first got out, um, Amanda and some of the other family took the initiative to really try and keep Ange away from all the influences in her life that tended to take her into addiction issues. Well, yeah, because you say a short time, but five days is really a long time to keep an addict clean when they're searching and looking. It's really hard. Especially when they just got out of prison where they haven't been able to touch anything for a while and they want to go back to it. Oh, yeah. You know, and she did. She was looking for that fix. We couldn't leave her alone for 20 minutes. I mean, you couldn't leave her. You couldn't trust her to go to the bathroom by herself you know the cravings were were that bad for her you know and and just a little bit of a backstory Ange was my half sister's half sister and so there's relationship but no blood there um just some familiar ties um so we kind of felt I kind of felt like it was partially my responsibility to to try to give this this unborn child the best start in life as possible you know Angela and I we we grew up together well and you grew up around addiction too so that had to be hard to to watch that as as she's coming out and trying to um trying to get her fixed to be able to to be the person to to kind of be the mom in the room once again to to keep her on the straight and narrow and keep her from doing something to hurt her kids well, and you say the mom in the room, and, you know, that that's the role that, that I've always fulfilled when it came to my family and family members. I've, I'm not certain 
the role has ever been anything else. I don't know how to be sister, aunt. You know, it's always been mom. So it's just, it's a role that, that's been placed upon me all my life. And it's just a role that I've accepted. It's who I am. Um, but yeah, Angela came out of, out of prison. And it was five long days before her water finally broke. And uh, we were all rushing to the hospital to, uh, to meet this little baby boy. Tell me about that, because if I remember right, you were in the hospital room when he was born. I was. Um, I, was I was present the entire time she was, was in the hospital um, through her labor and delivery. Um, it was fairly uneventful, um, straightforward birth. G was born, and uh, even at that point, you know, because when you go in to have a baby, you do get pain medication if you ask for it. Um, so Angela had finally gotten part of that fix she was looking for. So she was in her own place. I held the baby before she even did. You know, and there was... When G was born, there was just... There was that connection of being there, witnessing a birth. That's a very powerful thing. But I just knew when I held this little boy, I, I knew at that point that my life would forever be entwined in his. You know, he's my son now. You know, those feelings were, were spot on. You know, I didn't think that Angela was ever going to be able to get her shit together to be able to take care of of her child. Now, if I remember right, Ange was hep C positive, wasn't she? Um, she was, um... And as far as I know, to this day, she still is. And so we had a lot of questions around that um, because she had stated that she wanted to try to breastfeed. Um, And she did try for the first week to um, breastfeed. And everything that we got from the doctors was, well, we think it's okay as long as she's not bleeding. You know, we're not really sure, but we think it's all right. Um, And we did later go back after G came into care and, and have tests ran and he has no no issues with that. There was no lasting effects. He's not positive for HEP or anything like that. So there were no lasting effects as far as her breastfeeding or anything like that. He's he's good on that front. That's really fortunate. It's my understanding, um, and can can he contract the HEP C just being born as well, coming through the birth canal? They had a lot of precautions in place. He got antibiotics and things like that as soon as he was first born. Okay. And since, you know, actually there was there was more risk to us. For some reason, you know, they had us put on face masks and things like that. You know, and, and I'm not certain exactly why that was. I never really asked. You know, the doctor says, hey, do this so you don't get that. And, you know, you just, you do it. You do this, right. You know, you, you get so excited, you know, a baby's coming and, you know, you're you're focused on that. So I really, you know, and they could have given me the reasons and I just don't remember. Yeah. Okay, well, after Ange got out of the hospital, did she have a place to go, do you know? Do you remember? She did not have a place to go. She went back to Jackie and Arissa's house. So she went back to to your mom's house. She did at first. And then she probably stayed there the first week to try to get some help because she had had nothing for him. She didn't have a car seat. She didn't have a crib. Absolutely nothing. I mean, fresh out of prison, no clothes, no nothing. We helped get a lot of those things together for her. 
She stayed about the first week at Jackie's house. And then from there, her and Turtle's dad, her and G's dad got an apartment together. After that, I know that they stayed together for a while. I remember them being around from time to time, but not for a real long time. If I'm not mistaken, they uh, they ended up out in the city pretty shortly after that, didn't they? Yeah, they, they were not able to keep their place very long. Neither one of them had jobs, were working. So when you don't work, you, you can't pay the rent. So their first apartment did not last very long. They couch surfed. From family member to family member, friends, dealers, wherever they could just find a place to sleep. Now, if I remember, G's dad had some some gang affiliation down there, and that probably was a big part of where they were couch surfing down there at the time, isn't it? There was a lot of drugs, gangs, violence, prostitution. G's dad was Angela's pimp. Okay, that first year of G's life, I remember, you know, he, he was at our house a lot. We would get calls a lot of the time. Ange would say, hey, I've got, I, I've got a side job to work, which always blew my mind because most of the people I know who talk about having side jobs to work are in construction. And she definitely was not a construction worker. But she'd say, hey, I have a side job to work. Can you watch Little Man for a little while for me? You know, can you watch G for a day or two? You know, and then there there was the one night where you got the, the one phone call from Ange. Do you remember that one? I do. Middle of the night phone call. Sleeping. All the kids are asleep. You know, I want to say maybe 2, 3 o'clock in the morning the, the phone rings. And when your phone rings at 3 a.m., you think something's something's wrong. So you, you answer your phone at 3 a.m. when the phone rings. And it's Angela. She's calling me from jail. She says, I got picked up. I only got a minute here, but I've got warrants in several, several counties. I've got to be transferred to at least three counties that I know of. I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but I need you to keep the baby. Will you keep the baby for me? And he was already with us, wasn't he? Yeah, we, we had already had him. Um, I want to say we had already had him four or five days at that point, but the answer was the same as it always was, is, Yes, we'll keep the baby. Whenever Angela called, we always said yes, because when Angela called, we knew she was going out on a bender. It wasn't going to be good. She was doing her thing. And the last thing she needed was a baby in tow. When people are living that life, you know, you go out there and you do what you do. And that's a dangerous place for a grown human. It's incredibly dangerous for a baby. And that's probably part of who we are, you know, when you look at the foster care idea that the, just the fact that we had been doing foster care for a while is providing that strength for the weakest among us. It's taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. And so when we knew that Ange was going to be out doing something that was probably not a good place for a baby, you know, she would call us and say, Hey, can you keep him for a little while? And we would always say yes, just because that that was kind of who we were as a family. That was like one of our core values, I guess. Well, that was also the justification. At least she, at least she was calling to give him a safe place. Yeah, she I'm, knew what she was doing was wrong, and she she at least had enough wits about her that she wanted him to be in a safe environment. So to, I just in, in my heart, I could not turn her down 
because I knew what the consequences to that would be. Yeah, and I mean, I gotta give her credit. For at least she she realized the danger level and tried to keep him out of that place. You know, it's she, she made a lot of mistakes for sure, but that's one place I have to give her some credit is recognizing that that was not what she wanted for her baby to be around. So at least she had the good sense to do that and we were able to have the opportunity to be that safe place that she didn't have for him at the moment. Yeah, I mean, she she would call and we would come running. You know, it didn't matter time, day, you know, we'd drop what we were doing and, and we would go running. You know, we'd run down to that crappy Metrolink station and, and wait and the things that we've seen while we were waiting, you know. <laughs> yeah. And the stories could probably go on for days, you yeah, know, the deals. A and, lot of drug deals go down at that you station. Know, waiting for a baby because they didn't they did not have a vehicle you know that was their means of transportation was the bus systems yeah you know, every was... every once in a great while they would borrow a car from someone but that even at that point we always met them somewhere we would not let angela know where our home was well yeah we yeah. had other kids to protect and st louis does not have a great public transit set up down here so we've got some buses and a metrolink little train like the metrolink station that was closest to us was not what one would consider a safe place anyways so we would go meet her down there and pick him up down there a lot of times and yeah we saw a lot of interesting things down there we got a call one night from uh, somebody at the crisis nursery didn't we yeah we did get a call um from the crisis nursery um they had found angela and the baby angela kept nodding out while she was holding the baby um and they couldn't get her to stay coherent um so they actually they kept him for a weekend i'm not even certain it was a full weekend but they did end up releasing him back to angela's care you know and that was kind of what his first year looked like was a lot of bouncing around never a stable place to call home you know he didn't have a nursery a place to play it was just wherever they could could stay at the moment and it was really difficult to watch because we knew he didn't have a stable environment. We knew what he was going back to. We knew the situations that he was surrounded by. And it was so difficult. I mean, there were several times that we made hotline calls. And there was nothing that could be done because there was not an address to send them to. And if we did have an address by the time they got there, they'd be gone. You know, and there was just so many times in that first year, you know, you know what it was like for G when he would come those first couple of days. He he was unconsolable sometimes. Oh, yeah. He would just cry, you know, and there were times when we would first get him, he would be so lethargic and we would be on the point on the brink of taking him to the hospital because we knew something was wrong. Yeah. We knew he was coming down. We just didn't know from what. Yeah. Well, I'll never forget the time when... Um when we picked him up and if i remember right we had a, a problem with a washer drying machine and we were at the laundromat and you know, we, we'd have g in our house off and on quite a bit at that point so we we were really experienced with his personality and he didn't like men uh, i don't think he ever met a man he could trust at that point in his life and so he really didn't like me just because i i was a male and you know he had a real strong attachment with you but we picked him up that day and we went back to the laundromat. To yeah, because we left we left our clothes at the laundromat and drove yep. an hour and a half to go and. Yep, to go get him and and come back, but um, he 
we got him and we, he was just so like chill relaxed he didn't look like he, he wasn't mad about anything which was uncommon because see what you have to understand about g was g lived on the streets with mom when she was homeless you know whether it was a couch surf what whatever the, the actual place she slept at the night was they were living on the street they were living that that street life you know oh yeah there were times where there wasn't a couch to sleep on yeah and, and you know i mean i know i know enough to know that that g's daddy you know he was he was down down living the gang life i mean doing what they do and, and living that way and he witnessed enough of that to where he had zero tolerance for anybody except for amanda really like she was the one person and, and he was probably that way with his mom as well although i didn't have many opportunities to see the two of them really interact whenever we would pick him up or drop him off he would you know she would really just kind of snatch him or, or it or was toss a very and, quick and, yeah exchange you and know and gone so i didn't see a lot of those interactions with her but i did see his interactions with amanda and he was super tightly bonded with her like she was the the female figure that i saw him around and he was like yes come here you i want you i don't want anybody else all day every day yeah he was he was like just like a little spider monkey the way he would cling on to her as much as he could and i couldn't get anywhere near him without him getting upset about it but i I understood why too though because he lived in that life and saw men as a threat for good reason because god only knows the story that that baby could tell if he could have told stories from that time in his life so that first year of his was pretty dang rough i imagine I would say it was very, very traumatic. And even though he was, you know, under one and he doesn't remember those stories, the trauma's still there. You know, the damage is done. Oh, absolutely. The pathways are, are burnt in the brain. And that's what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, they'll say, oh, well, you know, he, he was only one years old. He don't remember. And, yeah, and, it doesn't affect him. He wasn't old enough. And they, they don't remember. But one of the things I have learned from talking to a psychologist is that when somebody experiences what becomes post-traumatic stress, that actually physically rewires parts of the brain. It changes the part of the brain. Something to do with the, the, the distance between reaction and that amygdala response where you immediately hit fight or flight. You know, where you, you're... You, cease to respond to things appropriately and you just react it's not it's not a choice you know the amygdala fires something like 10 times faster than than we can even speak so i forget the exact uh stat there but the amygdala fires so fast that that's that's the reason why when you walk around the corner and your little kid jumps out and goes boo and it's three o'clock in the morning he happened to wake up and just heard you come and decide to scare you that's the reason why your feet come off the floor when he does that it's not because you thought about it this is scary and i think i should jump up in the air because what good is jumping do right it's but the truth is is that what it is is it's your brain your brain just firing and going something something bad is here you know something dark there lies and it, it causes you to jump as a response that's the amygdala taking over and and that's what men caused for g yeah you know uh, and it wasn't just you it was it was all men it was it was every man that he ever met and so you know and fortunately by that time i was aware enough of those sorts of things to where i didn't really push it per se i would offer myself to him as as somebody to hold him or as somebody to 
to feed him or somebody to have some interaction with. But I worked really hard at not forcing that on him because I knew that his aversion to men wasn't a choice he made. His aversion to men was a choice. It was a reaction to the choice that other people had made. It wasn't his fault. He was, he was a kid who'd been damaged by adults who hadn't chosen to behave properly. Now that's a pretty crazy first year. Yeah. For anybody. Wow, that was a crazy first year. Well, next week we're going to get into some of the other things that happened coming into a second year and find out about some more trauma and some other issues that we had to deal with and most importantly G had to deal with. We hope you come back and catch next week's episode. Thanks for staying with us this long and here's a little bit of what's in store next week. Affiliation was well documented at his funeral because there was a whole section of the uh, mourners that were kind of color-coded in their clothing we'll say. So you walk into the funeral home and it's pretty obvious that you're at a gang member's funeral. We'll see you for episode two next week. In the meantime, be sure to go over to jasonmpalmer.com and check out the blog over there and visit us on our Facebook page at She Called Me Daddy. Please, if you know of any children who are in danger of being neglected or abused, report it immediately. Call 911, your local police department, or 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That's 1-800, the number 4, and the word A-CHILD.